This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? One Britain, One Nation, One Podcast. We're recording on the fifth anniversary of the referendum that uh, caused us to start the podcast in the first place, so it wasn't all bad. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. First up, we have political commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, the Tory-dominated Commons Education Committee has examined the underperformance, underperformance of white pupils of free school meals, um, and in the sort of pitch for the report, blamed, among other things, the concepts of white privilege. Labour committee member Kim Johnson disowned the report and accused the Tories of trying to create a bit of a culture war because that is what they do. Um, is this entirely the wrong place for a bit of drive-by woke bashing? Look, I, I think woke bashing now exists in lieu of analysis. That's that's my reading of it. All these reports seem to start from what will upset the woke most and work backwards. When I read the summary of the report, my first thought was working class white boys versus everyone else seems a pretty weird comparison. How do they do versus their BAME socioeconomic equivalents, for instance? Or how do they compare after leaving school? White privilege doesn't mean there isn't a single non-white person doing better than any white person, for fuck's sake. It means if if I were me, but also black or a woman or gay or trans, or an immigrant, or a, or a combination of the above, would I find life systemically harder? That is to say, more difficult mm. by design than I do if I'm not those things. It's, it's a very strange thing to arrive at that conclusion. Had they continued with their research down this really obvious path, they would have found the same thing that every study of, the, of its kind has found. And it even has a name. It's called the white working male paradox. So the University of Aberdeen looked at this only two years ago and found that despite the fact white working class boys perform the poorest in terms of educational attainment, once they're out of education, they outperform both their female and BAME cohorts in terms of income. So far from undermining notions of white male privilege, the committee's findings confirm their effect. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello, Doreen. Now, uh, our special guest who I'm introducing in a minute is uh, working at Westminster. And in the background, you may be able to hear at points uh, anti-Brexiter Steve Bray uh, protesting with his, uh, with his anti-Brexit roadshow. The show must go on. Um, <laughs> Uh, which brings us to the Joint Committee on Human Rights telling the government that its plan to ban noisy protests, although it might help podcasters, could undermine freedom of expression, uh, which, seems <laughs> fair, which seems fairly obvious. Is, is this likely to become the kind of legal headache that might cause a U-turn? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be a legal headache for Steve Bray because it's almost specifically designed to outlaw people like him, in particular individual protesters who make a lot of noise near Parliament. Um, that's very much the focus of the bill. And the trigger is for the police to impose these very, very restrictive conditions on protests will be based on how much noise they produce. It's not just that either. You've also got a new uh, regulation which gives power for the Home Secretary to clarify what serious disruption to organisations and the community mean. And if she, as it is she at the moment, as we know, it's pretty Patel, decides that something qualifies as that, the protest can be preemptively banned. This is really, really serious, really, really bad stuff, which hands over an enormous amount of power to the police and the Home Secretary to decide what protests, what freedom of expression in this context is legal. It will be the subject of a lot of litigation. I mean, there will be 
not just litigation either, there will be protests against the ban on protests, which you've already seen to an extent, but I expect more of those. That's exactly what they didn't want to happen. Yeah, I can see deliberately silent protests with people, you know, for example, tape over their mouths uh, to point out the craziness of this law or maybe, you know... Holding a pint of milk. (laughs) Or maybe raids that are in fact protests, but but are masquerading as raids in order to be made legal, things like that. The Joint Committee is is pressing for a statutory right to the freedom of protest, but it is very hard at the moment to see this government going for that. But there will be, from Liberty and from other organisations, lots and lots of legal challenges to that. The real thing going on here is what the government is trying to do is to limit the ability of people to gather for the purposes of political protest. It doesn't really have a a problem with them gathering for other purposes, as we saw at the weekend when the loads of fans gathered in Leicester Square and got together. That's okay because it's football. It's not okay when it's political. Mm. There will always be creative ways around that, but few people are going to have the ingenuity to get around it or can afford to risk being arrested in order to do so. And that creates a very frightening situation around our freedom of expression. And I think it's something which we really, really need to fight at this moment. Our special guest this week, coming live from the festive atmosphere of Westminster, (laughs) is Alva Ray, political correspondent at The New Statesman and a regular voice on the best weekly politics podcast that doesn't have a question mark in the title. Hi, Alva. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm disappointing, you know, because Steve Bray has actually gone quiet, but I expect that it will get noisy again, um, for which apologies in advance. He's just gathering his strength. Yeah. <laughs> um, Edwin Poots has been ousted from the DUP leadership after just 21 days, um, although it probably seems longer to him because he thinks the earth is only 6,000 years old. <laughs> um, he's been replaced... <laughs> He's being replaced by last month's defeated candidate, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. So what on young earth is going on with the DUP? Um, and, and is Donaldson better placed to handle the unrest that brought down Poots and then before him, Arlene Foster? Oh, big question. Um, so what's going on is that, yeah, Geoffrey Donaldson is now the only candidate to replace him. So even though he isn't officially the new DUP leader yet, he almost definitely is going to be uh, by early next week. Um I think I suppose he he I mean he inherits all of the same challenges that brought down Arlene Foster and that Edwin Poots was brought in to solve, and um, which is mainly that there's just a lot of upset about the Northern Ireland Protocol in the unionist community and in the DUP in particular, and the DUP is performing really incredibly badly in the polls right now, which is really worrying, um, its politicians, um. I'm not sure if he is going to be any better place to fix them than Arlene Foster. Certainly Edwin Poots thought that he could do a better job and then swiftly realised he couldn't. In the past few days, we saw he's kind of rolling the pitch for some, maybe to frame some kind of small Brexit concession um, over the Northern Ireland Protocol as a big DUP win. And I think the other thing that is fairly certain is that he really wants to keep the Stormont show on the road. So we've had a, a few quite in, un, you know unstable weeks in Northern Irish politics where it looked as though either the DUP or Sinn Féin might bring down the executive and prompt a snap election. And, and so why, did, why was Poots basically not given a chance at all? I mean, that's a sort of Scaramucci-esque tenure. Um, <laughs> and, and I just wonder, was, was it, I mean, I just don't understand why it happened so quickly. Yeah, well, so this is uh, this is part of the. I mean, I find it the fun of Northern Irish politics, but it also makes it um, more technical than describing any other parliament or, or system. Right. Basically, it's because they, I mean, he should have been able to foresee this the whole time. But basically, because of the the arrangements in place from the Good Friday Agreement and you know the things to ensure power sharing and stability at Stormont. When Arlene Foster had to resign, because the First Minister and Deputy First Minister posts are a joint office, it means that neither of them is in post after that. And basically, they should have known, Evan Poots should have known that there was just going to be this moment of leverage for Sinn Féin before they appointed a right. new first minister and deputy first minister, they basically said, you know, we're not going to appoint our first minister and deputy first minister unless we get these concessions. So the British government said, okay, fine, 
if Stormont doesn't legislate for the Irish language soon, we'll do so by October. Edwin Poot said, great, fine, sounds good to us. And his party were absolutely furious. This looked like another humiliation for the DUP to give this big concession to Sinn Féin so easily. Incredible, incredible situation. Yeah. This week on the show, after the Lib Dems gave the Conservatives the shock of their lives in Chesham and Amersham, we ask if there's a blue wall ready to crumble in the South and whether this result makes our listeners' dreams of a progressive alliance more or less likely. Plus, as Dido Harding is lined up as the next NHS chief executive, we look at the remarkable career of a woman who has risen without a test and trace. (laughs) And in our extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, the government is looking for a chief bullshitter under the title of Brexit Opportunities Unit Director. We'll discuss what we would do with the job. But first, here's Alex with some exciting news. Listeners with very long memories may remember that we were all set to do another of our exciting live shows in London back in April 2020. Then, for some trivial reason that nobody can remember, we had to postpone it twice. Why was that? But the good news is that we've finally got a new date and the panels are confirmed. Oh God, What Now versus our sister podcast, The Bunker, is now happening on Tuesday 10th of August at the Leicester Square Theatre at 7pm. There are some tickets still available and you can get them at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Come and join me, Dorian, Naomi and Ian for a grand reunion show with plucky up-and-comers The Bunker in the support slot, Cool and the Gang to our Van Halen. It will be a great night. We've been looking forward to this for ages. We booked it so long ago that it was originally called Remaniacs versus the Bunker. Patreon people, you should have received a discount voucher by now. Check your Patreon messages. Everyone else, visit com to get your tickets. To quote her Madge, we will meet again. Thanks, Alex. I appreciated your topical musical references there. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, Lib Dem Sarah Green trounced Tory Peter Fleet in Chesham and Amersham, a seat that's been blue since its inception in 1974. Almost nobody saw it coming, but everybody knew why it proved what they thought all along. Alex, uh, the pollster Chris Curtis tweeted in advance of the result that if the Lib Dems won, it would be more shocking than Hartlepool. Do you think the media missed this one? <laughs> I've, I've, I've particularly enjoyed the same pundits who last month were telling every news programme that the Hartlepool by-election positively proved whatever regressive Brexit nonsense they wanted, telling the same channels this week that by-elections mean nothing, they're just a protest <laughs> way, they're a chance to kick the government, etc., etc. So, you know, par for the course, I think. Um, Big names like Dominic Raab and Jeremy Hunt could lose their seats with just half that swing to the Lib Dems. Does this prove what some people were saying after the local elections, that Tories have been so excited about knocking down the red wall that they've neglected the blue wall? I know that there was a time not so long ago when we didn't talk about different coloured walls all the time, but here we are. Um, You know, that that they've basically sort of taken their their, their eye off the ball in their heartlands. You know, I'm one of those people. I've, I've said this quite a lot. It's a story that will build, I think. During Wednesday's PMQs, we saw three quite aggressive questions from big hitter Tory backbenchers on, I think it was restrictions to travel, foreign aid and planning reform. Um, that last one was Theresa Villiers. I have a sense that Chesham and Amersham was quite important. It sort of interrupted Johnson's momentum and and proved him not to be unbeatable. And psychologically, I think that's important to his political enemies, both within the Tory party and on the opposite benches. So I've been saying again and again that an administration like Johnson's is great attacking, but weak if you put them on the back foot. And so Labour should be concentrating on the numbers as they are today, rather than historical links which mean they see constituencies as gettable despite being you know 30 percent behind the tories are ripe for a flanking basically they've left themselves exposed because when we when we talk about the red wall obviously a lot of this stuff is demographic it's not just people the same people suddenly shifting from labor to tory it's a kind of more aging homeowning population in a lot of these places yes. so what's changing in the middle class commuter belt seats you know about well, the, look, the kind of makeup of the people there yes i i think some of the stuff is demographic effectively 
you're seeing the same effect that you saw in the Obama, in the two Obama elections and also in the Biden election in America, that the the urban centers sort of expand culturally, politically, in a way that begins to include the suburbs and surrounding commuter belts. Mm. And so, yes, I think that is happening, but that is a sort of glacial evolution. The big change in the equation has mm. been the offering from the Tories. They're now, you know, spending money hand over fist um, and, and giving it all to their new sort of favorites. Uh, and, and the South, I think, is feeling a little bit left out of the conversation. Well, well, Roz, our friend Rob Ford told the Sunday Times that levelling up would mean money going from places like Cheshire and Amersham to places like Hartlepool. And that's obviously, I mean, that's a good thing for regional equality. But but does it spell trouble for the Tories for for real, just, you know, for for kind of pocketbook reasons and for feeling, these people then feeling neglected? Yeah, it it does. I mean, clearly, as Alex says, there's a uh, shift away from the Tories in towns just outside London, and in, in, particularly in, in the south where people did not vote leave and are now fed up. They fed up because they got a much, much harder Brexit than they wanted. And of course, we mustn't forget that this there was an element of nimbyism to this vote. There was a lot about planning and HS2. It was a really interesting result, though, because it showed what is possible in the by-election. And when your electorate is kind of alert to tactical voting and keen on it, which isn't the case nationally, it does show how determined people can be to punish the government for ignoring them as they feel. And the paradox, of course, is your is your vote counts much more in a by-election, even though it's not going to change the government, mm. because everyone's looking at you suddenly. It's a performative gesture that you can make. And so this, this really was a screw you, Boris vote. And it does mm. open up a possible schism between the Tory North and the hitherto Tory South. So you think it's more that it's not just that, 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 that's, I suppose, that nibby narrative, that protest narrative, you know, about HS2 and house building, even though the National Party Lib Dem supports both. You think it's, uh, it, it, there's more of a sort of explicit anti-Johnson vote there. Yeah, I think it was, uh, it was, let's, let's show them who's, you know, not who's boss, but let's show them what we think of them. Let's make a gesture. And this was the ideal opportunity to do so. Not actually going to change very much, uh, not a risky vote, um, but it, it delivers a message to Johnson yeah. about not taking Cheshire and Amersham for granted. If you want to uh, punch the government on the nose, it's better to do it in a by-election than, uh, for example, a national referendum on leaving the European Union. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Labour recently put out a, a pretty nibbyish tweet about the government's planning bill, um, which got a lot of people quite angry. Do you think that that's just opportunism or is there a sound argument that they can make for being in favour of house building but against this particular bill? Yeah, this tweet pointed out that the Tories may push through housing developments if the developers give a lot of money to the party. And this is a completely fair point. It has already happened when Robert Jenrick approved Richard Desmond's West Ferry development. And then Desmond gave the Tories 12 grand just after Jenrick overruled the council to allow it. Um, given what we've seen happen with procurement and PPE, this seems more likely than not to happen again with planning. But giving councils the ultimate say may not fix that because developers can simply give backhanders to council members and local parties or other than the national party. So there is that pot that potential for right. graft and corruption. And this is all happening at a time when people are spending more time at home in their gardens, thinking about their neighbourhoods because they haven't been allowed to leave them much in the last year or so, worried about their new house being overlooked, their neighbourhood getting crowded. And these people will find a lot to seize on in the bill because there's a lot wrong with it. The housing plans are really being fast-tracked. The quotas are imposed centrally. There's been a kind of watering down of some of those quotas with um, urban areas forced to accept more houses and rural areas fewer, but that's not going to be enough for, for mm. objectors. And there's kind of weird stuff like fast-tracking for what they call beautiful buildings. I mean, no one is going to agree on what a beautiful building is. And anyway, when the aim is to house people in decent homes – Arguably, that's a lot more important than defining beauty <laughs> in, the, in the planning system. And housing supply is not just about planning. It's about affordability. It's about regulating Airbnbs. It's about the policy on second homes, yeah. which are currently very tax efficient unless you live in Wales. There's all kinds of other things going on apart from planning, which 
could be used to increase the housing supply, but which aren't. Got it. Alva, Ed Davey has been looking uncommonly cheerful with his little orange hammer. Uh, do you think that this <laughs> that this indicates a possible Lib Dem revival after a rotten few years? Or does it does it feel like too much of a one-off to extrapolate anything from? Oh, I mean, I think you're right that Ed Davey is in a buoyant mood after that by-election win. Um, whether, whether it's a Lib Dem revival or not, I think is a trickier question. I mean, I, the point that I made repeatedly when he won the leadership was that the Lib Dems are, in a way, in a stronger position electorally than I think people would think from looking at their tiny number of MPs at the moment and the fact that they lost their leader at the 2019 general election. Because actually, they're second in, it was 90 seats, now 89, after Sarah Green won in Cheshire and Amersham, but 79 of those are Conservative-facing. And... Um, in most of the target seats where they would expect to do well with even just a small swing towards them. They're just, you know, they're the main challenges to the Conservatives. And in a way, they have very distinct areas of strength to the Labour Party at the moment. Um, I think they're reasonably confident of being able to um, be part, potentially, of the next election of denying the Conservatives an overall majority and increasing their seat share by by 10 or 20. But to be honest, in the short term, clearly this is the best this Parliament will get for the Lib Dems. <laughs> you know, they're not going to have conditions like this no. again, but it's very, you know, it's, it's a, a good sign of... Um, Everything that Ed, Ed Davey was privately promising his party when he was campaigning for leader, it's a sign that, you know, he can actually deliver on it, that he, he's always been very proud of his strength as a campaigner and his understanding of the sort of the trickiness of being the third party um, in a first-past-the-post system. And I think he just has proven that he gets it and he can deliver these sorts of wins. Um, Labour came fourth with with a, a sort of pitiful six hundred twenty two votes, um, which I think is a, is a sort of historic low for a by election. Starmer haters obviously had the knives out. Do you think that it it means anything for for Labour that it was a kind of failure on their part, or was this just a a sort of tactical voting dream come true? Mm, I've been asked about this a lot, and I, I feel like I have to keep emphasising that Labour is definitely in crisis at the moment, don't get me wrong, mm. but this is just a footnote to the crisis. If anything, I think you know both can be true. Labour is not doing very well, didn't do well in Hartlepool, is very much expecting a kicking in the Batley and Spen by-election next week, but Cheshire and Amersham was never in play for them. It, you know, if, that, if patterns like that played out, you know, in a general election and the Lib Dems managed to squeeze the Labour vote so effectively in the seats where they were challenge, challenging the, the Tories, that would be really, really good for Labour. When, I, when I've kind of made this point on, <laughs> on other broadcast things, it sounds like I'm sort of defending a, a very embarrassing moment for Labour. I, I just think that mm. they have bigger embarrassments to contend with. I just <laughs> gen- genuinely think that you know, they're, they're stressed out by quite a lot of stuff, but actually Cheshire and Amersham is, yeah. not, you know, is not at the top of the list. Well, we discussed the the Progressive Alliance uh, scenario recently. Uh, Davey says that there's no need for one, um, sort of because voters can do it themselves. Does this suggest that he's that he's right? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that that's been the Lib Dem and Labour analysis privately, and and then as you say now publicly, um, for a long time. I think it's it's true that certainly there are times. I'm sure lots of listeners to this podcast. in in particular seats felt frustrated at the last election that there maybe wasn't a clear Remain candidate in particular seats that Labour and the Lib Dems or Labour and a Change UK candidate were, 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 you know, head to head. But But in practice, there's sort of nothing that either party could have done about that not you know labor weren't about to stand on for chukka muna who had left them chukka muna wasn't about to stand on for them sometimes just the voters or the just the practical internal politics make it impossible the i i think it is correct of people like ed davy to say that it's a bit patronizing for parties to act like they own their voters and can you know, can sort of safely gift them to other parties because mm. I'm, I'm not sure it would have helped if 
Sarah Green and Cheshire and Amrisham had been endorsed by Labour, um, but Labour voters there still did, for the most part, vote tactically. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's nothing really to suggest that a progressive alliance would um, do any of the parties any favours, even though there's obviously a particular kind of voter who finds that really frustrating and who does prioritise, <laughs> um, you know, the anti-Tory vote. But that's, that's not all voters and it's certainly not most people in political parties. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Like her pop namesake in the early noughties, Dido Harding is everywhere. Uh, in the past year, she's been NHS Improvement Chair, Head of NHS Test and Trace, Interim Chief Exec of the UK Health Security Agency, and now she's applying for the position of Chief Executive of NHS England. She seems to be a figure for our times, a well-connected serial failure who's never short of a plum job. What will it mean if she gets to head up the NHS? So, Roz, uh, in her career... Harding was a trainee management consultant, which is how she met her husband, uh, current Tory MP John Penrose. Then she worked for Thomas Cook, Woolworths, Tesco, Sainsbury's, then Talk Talk. And then when she moved to the uh, NHS Improvement, she said, I have not worked in health and social care and would be the first to admit I have a lot to learn about the sector. <laughs> Four years later, um, does she have serious qualifications for the NHS job? Well, no. I mean, how do you qualify for such a huge job? Because the NHS isn't one organisation. It's actually tens of thousands of organisations. It's incredibly complex and the people working for it are often very hard to manage. I don't mean that in a critical way. It's because they're consultants, but they're very hard to manage. Parts of it effectively compete with other parts, or sometimes they try to offload responsibility for some aspects of what they do onto other bits of it. To, to try and manage that, you need simultaneously a deep knowledge of the NHS and how it works and some experience in managing a big system. And although she has been in NHS improvement for a short time, she doesn't really have either of those because managing managing the NHS is not like managing the branch managers in Talk Talk or Tesco or Woolworths. Um, <laughs> of course, Woolworths doesn't even exist anymore. But um, it's a it's a completely different proposition, incredibly complex, and there's nothing in her career so far that suggests that she's up to it. Um, and I suppose she became well known for uh, for cooking up test and trace. Do you think that she personally botched that, or was it? Would it have been a tough gig for anybody? I actually think it would have been a tough gig for anybody. To be fair to Harding, what we saw during every lockdown that we've had was that cases quickly went down in affluent areas where where people can afford to self isolate because they did jobs that they could do at home and because they could effectively pay poorer people to bring them things. And that's why as each lockdown eased, you've seen deprived areas like the ones in the northwest where cases are still a bit high. And then those cases after each lockdown spread outwards to the rest of the country again. You never quite get quite get there in, in tamping them down. Test and trace depends on people getting tested, which usually they have no incentive whatsoever to want to do. And then isolating which they have even less incentive to want to do, and giving all their contacts the bad news that they have to isolate too. That is horrible. I mean, it's easier if you're middle class and you work a desk job. If you're not either of those things, it's really, really hard. And it it demands an, an awful lot of cooperation and goodwill and financial sacrifice on the part of the people doing it. Um, Alpha, when Harding ran Talk Talk, the company won the Wooden Spoon Award for the worst public service two years in a row. Uh, two of the companies she worked for, Thomas Cook and Woolworths, uh, have gone into liquidation, not while she was in charge. Um what what when you look at her record, what has she sort of succeeded at that explains uh, her kind of rise? I mean, I say this. I mean, per perhaps there are achievements that I have that I am missing, but I think that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean I think honestly, to be frank, maybe you know the main thing that has secured her success in securing these roles is actually 
a close personal friendship with Matt Hancock because they are both jockeys, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and because they know each other through the sort of the horsey world. Um, I... I mean, I sorry. I'm aware that Steve Bray has his the anti-Brexit protests have started up again outside Parliament, um, but um, I I think that she is still, you know, quite well thought of um, in the Conservative Party, and I think that there is a, an extent to which there were parts of Test and Trace that were beyond her control, like, for example, the fact that, as Ros was mentioning, the the trickiest bit of Test, Trace and Isolate was getting people to isolate. And part of that was, you know, whether people would be given a financial incentive to do so, whether they could afford it. And that was, you know, that wasn't within her gift. That was within the the gift of Rishi Sunak, who didn't really provide that that money. So I think that... um, she still has clearly some qualities, but I'm afraid I'm unable to answer the question in terms of pointing to some sort of achievement that definitely qualifies her for this one. Because, I mean, I mean, probably, I mean, I don't know what her feelings are about Kate Bingham, but here's someone who's also married to Tory MP, who was also kind of um, accused of being part of a democracy, and of course has done very well uh, with the vaccine rollout. So, you know, it, appointing appointing your mates um can can sometimes work but do you think this government is particularly keen to employ their mates and give them multiple chances i do think so i mean i think that maybe it actually is part of the legacy of david cameron to be honest um in that that was a political project that was really characterized by chumminess um and there was a certain kind of strength to it in that David Cameron and and his close friends, um, before he became leader of the opposition and then during his time in opposition, they would have their suppers on Sunday nights in their, you know, in each other's homes in Notting Hill and just have really frank discussions about what the Conservative party needed to do to reform and eventually win. And he took those people into Downing Street with him. They weren't just you know, on the same page politically. They were also godparents to each other's children. They were, you know, close, long-standing friends. And people like Matt Hancock are products of that mindset and that kind of way of doing politics. Mm. Obviously, that way of politics didn't work out because it really fell with the big betrayal of Michael Gove, one of that, one of those close friends in that set. But I think it, there was a feeling that it did work for it did work for a while rather than, you know, Boris Johnson is, is less clubbable in a sense. The conservatives like him because he's a winner, um, but they don't necessarily feel those same close loyalties. So I, I think it is literally people like Matt Hancock learned the ropes of politics in the Cameron era and in a crisis, particular people like Matt Hancock revert to that way of doing things and they think the you know the best way of getting things done and the way to feel politically safest is to call on your mates got the wrong mates I haven't been given any plum jobs because <laughs> <laughs> we've become friends with Matt Hancock it's not too late I, I want to say now if any rich listeners want to pay me to bring them stuff I am available <laughs> um Alex uh, Harding has report- reportedly pledged to stop the NHS relying on foreign-born staff, that's currently 14% of the total, and train more British doctors and nurses instead. Um, do you put that down to to Brexity nativism, or is there a, a sort of sounder reason? Um, no, I put it down to Brexit. I put Brexit down to Brexit nativism. Um, I, I think it's not aspirational. Um, I, I don't think it's based on what she would like to happen, but what on, on what is happening. Um, so it may not be a realistic promise, but it might be a useful target uh, because the NHS has lost so many uh, EU27 workers and is continuing to uh, have very little interest in terms of applications. The, the nursing applications are down. I, the last estimate I saw was down by 97% from EU27 countries compared to what they were before Brexit. So, I mean, the interesting thing is that it doesn't address how many UK trained doctors and nurses the UK loses every year, which is also spiking <laughs> because they, they'd rather go and work somewhere else. So ultimately, if you want to attract and retain staff, 
you have to make the NHS an attractive employer. And you can set all the targets you want, but when you give a 1% pay rise to an organization that has basically fought a war for the people of this country in the last year and a half, mm. all the targets in the world won't stem the flow of CVs to non-NHS employers and won't increase them coming in. It does seem very suspicious that from apparently, yeah, this was reported as being part of our application. So I don't know if it was sort of, uh, you know, strategically leaked mm. or I'm not quite sure how it was reported. But it seems suspicious that that was the thing. That was the only thing. It wasn't about, I don't know, wanting to sort of pay people more or wanting to, um, you know, learn lessons from the pandemic. It was like, get the foreigners out was seemed to be the top line. I mean, I think Alva basically spoke for so many of us when when she said that she looks at uh, Dido Harding's CV and thinks, what am I missing? Um, and maybe maybe that's the skill. Maybe she's just very skilled at telling prospective employers precisely what they want to hear. Um, and to wrap up, Alva, there's a, Sir Patrick Valance is set to head up a new science, National Science and Technology Council. Um and Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings have been speaking a lot about making the UK a science superpower, getting more scientists in, kicking out all the, the bloody poetry graduates. Um, what's the um, What appears to be the purpose of this body? Oh, good question. You're full of the hard questions. Um, I think, <laughs> um, I mean, they literally have someone in Downing Street whose, whose role is to maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but their role is literally to, you know, make sure that Nobel Prize winners and so on can get visas easily and, and, to, and to ensure that there's a proper scheme for doing that. I think that um, there is just... I, I, I actually think that Dominic Cummings isn't wrong on this in terms of wanting to prepare the British economy for a future of of tech and science and wanting to be firmly in that game. And I think, you know, things like the development of the AstraZeneca vaccine do demonstrate that the the UK has some of the best research universities in the world and probably a bit of joined up thinking on how you can best benefit from that and incentivize um you know, ensure that Britain becomes a leader in the field. I think that that makes sense, actually. Ros, do you think that we need more more scientists in Whitehall? Yeah, we do. And uh, I think, to credit, I mean, Kate Bingham as well believes this. She's a she's she's a highly qualified scientist herself. There is, you know, it it it's, it it sticks in the craw to say so, but. <sighs> A number of the things that Dominic Cummings has been saying since he left Downing Street, and particularly in the last two or three weeks or so, um, are quite true, particularly about Boris Johnson's character and about things like the need for more scientists in government, because you get a different perspective. And it's uh, often one of the examples that I heard Kate Bingham use when she was talking about the vaccine rollout was that People, civil servants who were drafting papers about vaccines for or, or any other scientific subject often didn't know what they didn't understand fully what they were talking about. And they were writing them, but they weren't they weren't abreast of the detail and they were having to write about stuff that they really didn't understand because there weren't enough people in the service who had that knowledge. And that's never going to be a good idea when you're trying to make sure that science and scientifically informed work is at the heart of government. Now it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week we pick the Dido Harding and Kate Bingham of politics. Uh, this week, it's the turn <laughs> of our special guest, Alva Ray. Um, Alva, what do you have for us? Okay, you're not going to believe this, but I was going to do Dido Harding and Kate Bingham. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the speed of light, my um, my new underrated, overrated are on very on brand. Being Northern Irish and having already talked slightly about this, is I think that Arlene Foster was an underrated leader, and Edwin Poots was overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, just briefly, why? Why was Ali Foster underrated? Do you do you think that actually that that perhaps we we underestimated just how 
you know, just how tricky the job was. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure listeners are going to be tempted, having heard that, to email me or tweet me and or email you guys with a big list of all of her political failures and all the things that she miscalculated and got wrong, which is absolutely true. But I think that in this brief period since she lost the job and was quite brutally ousted she's really been vindicated I think you know we've seen with Edwin Poots who he thought that he could do a better job and was proved brutally wrong 20 days in (laughs) um from just the conversations I've had with people from across Northern Irish politics and people here in Westminster I think there's a sense that within the 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 narrow scope that she had as leader of that party, she did manage to pivot slightly away from the most sort of difficult and divisive elements of unionism and try to think more about the Northern Irish economy and promoting a sort of pride of Northern Ireland image. And I have a soft spot for her, I have to admit, um, for uh, as another Northern Irish person, um, I think that her just very proud advocacy of Northern Ireland as a place was very, very endearing. And um, so, you know, I I don't know if, if the rest of you will have seen her various appearances on things like Andrew Marr, but she's so proud to be from Fermanagh, where she's lived her whole life, that she would just doggedly do her media appearances from her back garden in Fermanagh, no matter what the weather. There was one where she was absolutely shivering. Um, and, you know, uh, there was all this ice around her. She was in this big shawl. And then, you know, she said, good, you know, good morning, Andrew, from uh, freezing but beautiful Fermanagh. And I, I just, <laughs> I really respected her... Um, her commitment to the Northern Irish advocacy. And even last week, she did a, a quite funny subtweet of Edwin Poots. When he was being brutally oysted, she tweeted something like, hope everyone's having a lovely day. I've just had a lovely lunch at Dean's at Queen's of Belfast. The sun is shining. <laughs> um, happy days. <laughs> <laughs> Which everyone enjoyed, you know, for for the obvious reasons, that not so subtle gloat. But I also thought that that was another very um, funny example of her just doing a little bit of Northern Irish publicity, because that's a very nice restaurant in Belfast that had, you know, Laura Coonsberg was retweeting that. Deans at Queen's will be delighted that uh, Arlene Foster gave them that little boost. So that's why I think Arlene Foster is is underrated. And Edwin Poots, well, he was overrated when he when he thought that he could do a better job. That was a tough pitch, but I'm I'm sold. (laughs) Now it's time to answer a question from the Oh God What Now network of chums and cronies in But Your Emails, although it should probably be But Your Texts. Uh, This week, as it's Brexit anniversary week, we've got a Brexity question. David Ralston asks, is the following critique by Darren McGarvey from his book Poverty Safari fair? And if so, how should this change the way the centre stroke left engages with the issue? Brexit Britain, in all its dysfunction, disorder and vulgarity, is perhaps a glimpse of what happens when people start becoming aware of the fact they haven't been cut into the action, but have no real mechanism to enfranchise themselves beyond voting. When people vote against their own interests because they don't think it's going to matter either way. Roz, now that we've had sort of five years to reflect on, I suppose, the the, the protest aspect of Brexit. What do you think? Yeah, uh, essentially, in many ways, the referendum was a protest vote for a lot of people. They thought that it leaving the EU wouldn't make a great deal of difference to their lives. And they spotted the opportunity to give David Cameron a kicking and it's an irony that you know what it, what we call direct democracy referendums in in, in um, many respects is is actually not that direct at all. It doesn't get people what they want it, and they use it often to express an opinion on something which is not the question that they're being asked. That is the huge risk of referendums generally. That you you think you're being you know you're consulting the electorate that you're saying. What is your precise opinion on this subject? Uh, We really want to hear from you and we want you to consider this and think about this. But a lot of people don't have time to consider it and think about it, but they do spot an opportunity to make their voices heard and make their dissatisfaction with 
the government clear. And that is the big, big risk, you know, that referendums have. Another, of course, is the fact that they're, you know, not, they're, they're not properly regulated often, and the claims that can be made in them are not, uh, are not uh, regulated in any meaningful and useful way. As a counterpoint, um, I was reading Ed Miliband's new book, um, and, and he says that, you know, he was speaking to people in Doncaster who were genuinely, like, they, they felt that they did know what they were voting for. They were genuinely enthusiastic and they wanted change. And he was going like, you know, they, 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 they proved that there was actually an appetite for major change, perhaps not the major change that um, the progressives would like. Um, but, I mean, do, do we perhaps underestimate, uh, because we don't believe it ourselves, you know, how much optimism played a part as well. It was just like, we just need, we need something to happen. I mean, so from, from my own reporting, I think that, I mean, Ed, Ed Miliband's book is very good as an aside, um, but I I think that he's completely right. Like that was definitely my experience of, of reporting on Brexit, that I think that there, you know, I suppose it depends on, on whether you describe that as optimistic or pessimistic, but this feeling of opting mm. for big change and that this was an opportunity to do things differently. And if, you know, your kids were struggling to find a job, you yourself were struggling, you didn't like seeing the, you know, the state of your high street or whatever it was, it seemed like pulling this big lever March Brexit would, would do the job. I think that he's correct to identify that. And, you know, I suppose the argument in his book is that that was not the right change, but that you can harness that appetite to to offer people that change in a more meaningful way. Um, but I, I think that that's completely right. And I think pe- it's something that people get wrong about Dominic Cummings and indeed about Boris Johnson. If they don't personally like them, they struggle to see the, the fact that Boris Johnson is an optimistic politician. He paints a positive image of of Britain, of change and... Um, I think that, you know, I was speaking to a pollster yesterday, actually, who was saying that in focus groups, people always find the Labour Party very gloomy and that they have a they have a branding issue that even, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't want people, they don't want the Labour Party attacking the government, far from it, but they find that the the tone is gloomy, that they don't have enough of a sense of humour, they they're not able to access that register. I think that's all quite, quite instructive in terms of how maybe opposition parties could do a bit better. So, Alex, to go back to that Darren McGarvey line, he goes, "Would people vote against their own interests because they don't think it's going to matter either way?" Mm. Do you think that uh, I, th- I can't remember when that book came out? Twenty eighteen, I think. Um, so after Brexit, before uh, before Johnson, um, do you think that's still the case? I think people like us who are um, uh, closely engaged with politics tend to overanalyze the way uh, people make decisions who are averagely engaged with politics, which means really not very much. Uh, and so we we try to find these complicated uh, uh, sort of rationales for why people vote this way and vote that way, when in essence my own view is that uh, People behave, people basically vote on recognizability, on likability, uh, on what's fashionable, on what their peers are doing. They effectively behave like a murmuration of starlings that seems to make meaningful shapes in the sky, but is actually just a, a, a sort of mass uh, uh, collection of individual decisions. I think the fact people were pissed off and unhappy with the way things were going made a huge difference to the turnout. I think that's the reason a lot more people voted uh, in the Brexit vote than usually do. Mm -hmm. I think people had a gut feeling from the moment the, the referendum was announced. And I think that has to do with the fact that people in this country... Uh, uh, on the whole, view Europe with suspicion. They view the European project with suspicion. They joined it under protest in many ways in the 70s because things were so bad here. But now that things are really good here, no one wants to give the European project any credit for that. Um, You know, this country pulled itself up from its own bootstraps. That's the narrative people want to believe. And now that things are going better they can get out of a thing that they never really yeah. liked in the first place. 
I think things would be very different if uh, another European nation had given us uh, at least one point in Eurovision. (laughs) And that's the show. My thanks to Roz. Thank you. Alex. My pleasure. And our special guest, Alva Ray. Thanks for having me. And special thanks to the provider of background vibes, Steve Bray. In our extra bit exclusive for Patreon backers, we'll be discussing what we would do with the poison chalice of Brexit Opportunities Unit Director. Back us for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode. You'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and best wishes from me to Gavin Bennett, Sixt von Schulzendorf, Chris Hagen, 1878 Blue, and Aimee. And many thanks from me to Nancy Leeming, Kirsten McFarlane, Roxani Camperu, Julia Petri, and Claire. And finally, welcome aboard for me to Lorraine Parsons, Mike S, Sally Cheshire, Richard Erskine and Sean. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer is Andrew Harrison and the assistant producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit of Oh God, What Now? The exclusive green room for our Patreon backers. The government is recruiting a Brexit Opportunities Unit Director to assist Lord Frost in his dogged pursuit of the sunlit uplands by rewriting rules and regulations. We're looking for a visionary, inventive and dedicated leader to come on board to help us shape the future policy direction of the UK, Lord Frost says, hopefully. We're asking the panel what they would do if they were visionary, inventive and dedicated and forced at gunpoint to become... (laughs) The job that everybody's calling B-O-U-D. What initiatives would they undertake to ensure a bright future for Brexit Britain? Alex. Hello. (laughs) Launch us us into a sunnier future. Um, I would start working on a plan to convert online rage into sustainable energy. I think it is currently the main byproduct of our civic life and one of the new sectors in which we're genuinely world-beating, we might as well use it. Seriously, I'm completely serious. It could be like Bitcoin mining, basically. Just all those people being angry online could be powering some generator somewhere. No, seriously. Um, uh, I I take it you want a, a serious idea from me. Well, you know, I mean, you're not being paid 93 to 120 grand <laughs> per annum. Uh, but if you, if you want to give us one for free... Um, I think I would change the way immigration is calculated. Now that all the racists are a bit more relaxed that we took control of our borders. And that was a trailer for the Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be very grateful. Thank you for listening. See you next week.